Welcome, everybody. This is Dan Takini with Blood Nethos' Everyday Hero Podcast, where you can learn about the heroic efforts of B&E grads who are out there ordering chaos and releasing beauty in the world. Today, I'm here with my dear friend and business partner, Adrian Kaler. Adrian and I met about, oh, seven years ago in a training, and soon thereafter, he hired me to be the program director at a nonprofit where he worked and he ran, and they delivered re-entry services to men who had sentenced, who were sentenced to life in prison. Adrian has walked through so much since then. He's come through the imposter syndrome in a very powerful way, uh, living a life of authenticity and transformation. And I'm excited for you to hear about his journey and what horizons have opened up for him along the way. Adrian is an example of what it means to be revenant or to come back. Hey, it's great to have you here, Adrian. How are you? I'm great, man. Excited to be in this conversation and a little bit uh, nervous about it, but that's that means I'm in the right place. You know, let's just start with a little bit background for you uh, of you once you talk a little bit about Take New Ground. What were what was your vision when you founded it? Because that's what really attracted me to you. And I think that's also what's been attracting a lot of um, our success in the marketplace right now. But love to hear what promoted that for you, what provoked that for you. The coaching and the training work um, is essentially like the fourth movement in my life around career. And I've been doing this for about, uh, about I guess, eight years now. Um, and this is the closest thing for me of maybe my calling or what I, what I know I'm meant to do or what I feel most natural doing when I'm at it, when I'm in it. Um, it's like, wow, I was built for this. So for me personally, I, I love the work. And, and why I love the work is because um, I've been pestered my whole life with what matters. And, and I can't turn that conversation off in my head. And therefore, as, as when I'm in relationships or when I'm thinking about how to invest my life from a work perspective, if I can, have, if I can be in a conversation with somebody else about what matters to them in their life, in their work, with their teams, with their people, in their, in their primal uh, closest relationships, if I can really support, challenge, help usher in something new for them, that is like, for me, the most thrilling possibility there is for me. So I, I, that's why I do the work and the idea of Take New Ground, I mean, I think that that, that idea came a lot with, and got to see really what you could do and the environment you could create for a group of people that, was, that were striving to fresh perspective and fresh action and new results in their lives. That was really thrilling for me. The idea of Take New Ground came out of that. It's like, hey, what's worth fighting for? And um, the lethargy, and you'll hear in some of my story, some of my historic lethargy that was happening, I didn't even know it at, at certain times. And just the, you know, the resignation that I've lived in in different seasons of my life, I can spot that in other people really clearly because I've lived it. Because that's, I think, the biggest fight worth having. So helping other people fight for being fully alive is really, is really worth it to me. Working with all different types of companies, I love to learn. And uh, working in all these different industries, I get to learn all the time. And all these very different personalities I get to work with and support with and figure out how to support them. All different types of people. So I love variety in my life. So that Take New Ground gives me the opportunity to do that and to help other people win. And I know that, I mean, all the, all the time I get to hear people tell stories about what's happening 
right now as it relates to something we talked about three or four months ago. And just a, a conversation that happened on a Tuesday afternoon, six months later is reaping some huge rewards in their life and their business. And that is really satisfying to me. So that's why I get up in the morning to be, have these types of vigorous conversations that matter. Now, I started working with you back uh, about seven years ago with Corner, the Cornerstone Project. You know, you talked about your own, you know, your own fight with your own le- lethargy and some of the things that you've been through. Why don't, why don't you talk a little bit about your history, a little bit, your personal history sure. and your life before you kind of really started to make this shift at Take New Ground? Yeah. Well, let's see. So I, uh, I'll zoom through a few parts. So I, mean, I grew up in a small town in Southern Illinois, a couple of really great parents, both school teachers. I was a younger of two sons, very athletic family. It was kind of like, I, I tell people I lived in a version of uh, Friday Night Lights. My dad was the football coach with the whistle and my mom was the one in the stands chewing her little head off. And they, my parents were very present in our lives. Really great. Kind of a Norman Rockwell. That's right. Yeah. All American type environment. You know, some one favorite memory is I, you know, I I drive down the street on a Saturday morning after a big football game and people would holler at you from the sidewalk. Hey, good game last night. Like that type of that type of environment where, you know, everybody, everybody knows you. Really great. You know, Um, I mean, lots of great things about it, I would say. So anyway, I love I love my upbringing. Grew up in a in a faith filled environment, a Christian environment, which is an interesting context to grow up in. You know, so my parents are both very active and in service in the church. And I grew up in that context as well. What got you out here? Yeah, what got me out here was, um, let's see, I had, I, had, I had gone to school, undergrad, become a, a nurse, not really knowing what to do with my life, what I wanted to do. But I knew science worked for me and I knew service worked for me and I knew I wanted to travel. I'd taken a job in Chicago. While I was in Chicago, I got really involved in a church there and took some teams overseas. As a part of one of those trips, somebody introduced me to this thinker. His name was Erwin McManus. And Erwin spoke about the Christian faith in a way I hadn't heard before. Very essentially rebellious in his notions. And I, I, as a 23-year-old at the time, I thought, oh, this guy, I like him. I moved out to L.A. to be an intern at this church faith community here in Los Angeles called Mosaic and came out for this summer internship process. And that out of that, they created this two year long, like serving on the streets and doing stuff with the homeless, with the poor, with the down and out, with the single moms, the at-risk youth. That was really, as I was searching for meaning then, caring about people that, that the rest of the world forgot about or didn't care about, that mattered to me. And so uh, at Mosaic, they, they said, hey, would you do that? Would you help us organize a process uh, to mobilize our people? Mosaic was about 3,000 people back then. And so we created a process called Serve LA and these relationships in the city. My job was to connect us to the county and the city of Los Angeles. And a handful, I got to pick a handful of about you know, 30,000 nonprofits in LA. And I was the guy that would build the bridges. So I loved helping connect people to great opportunities. That was like that season of my life. And they asked me to stay and come on staff. And that meant I led a bunch of teams. I took teams overseas into, you know, into the, uh, was with a team that went and, and helped that with Hurricane Katrina support. I like throwing myself into chaos and helping to organize things. I took a team of three doctors and three nurses and a paramedic into the earthquake in Haiti. 
And that was thrilling for me. You know, when the earthquake happened, they called me and said, Adrian, what do we do? And eight days later, I've got a team on the ground. That's a fun game um, and a fun opportunity to go serve like that. Took teams to Pakistan. Anyway, got to travel the world, went all over the place and then got to go places and speak way, way beyond any of the opportunities I had really earned. You know, it's like a great moment in time. This church was influential. Irwin was very influential. The world wanted more of Mosaic and of Irwin, and they sent me instead. From that, I met a gentleman that had just come, started a, a fresh faith journey. His name was Jesse. Jesse had um, come from a wealthy family and had money to invest uh, philanthropically with this new, his new view of the world. And we had built a friendship and I'd been one of the guys that he met, first guys he met at Mosaic, and so I was a trusted guy of his. And he said, hey, would you help me figure out what, how to make an impact in the world? So I said, that sounds like fun. So I, um, I at that point, decided to leave Mosaic and um, start on this journey to help Jesse figure out what he wanted to do. So that, that was the start of Cornerstone, where I met you, because I, I met you sometime after you had been working with Jesse. That's right. Basically, that was like a call to adventure for you. Like you were going into a new adventure. You're going off with Jesse and you'd been serving on a platform with Irwin and it was very obviously powerful, structured. Right. And and, uh, and it enabled you to really make a lot of connections in LA. Yeah. And around the world, really. And then uh, and then you started working with Jesse to, to bring Cornerstone. Why don't you talk a little bit about Cornerstone's purpose and, and what you did there, because really, that's really the beginning, as I hear it, of you answering the call on your own or taking, you know, taking that leap. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was a jump into a whole different realm, which, you know, created the context for a lot of mess, which I'll get into probably in a couple minutes. But, um, but for Cornerstone, you know, um, so my, my, my purpose there was to help Jesse figure out what he wanted to do. So because I traveled a lot and because Jesse hadn't seen a lot of what was out there to do, I took him around the world um, to expose him to the different needs and, you know, from poverty to education crisis to uh, water crisis, you know, traveled lots of places. And we ended up uh, circling back into Los Angeles and got and had him sit down with an organization called Homeboy Industries which we've done a lot of partnering with and homeboy, you know, is the, one of the, if not the best gang reduction nonprofits in the world, very captivating vision. They've been, have a really phenomenal legacy there. And that really clicked for Jesse. And I think especially for where he was at in his life of, you know, he had made some really pivotal moves for himself and was reinventing himself and felt like he had a second chance in life. So that really became the mission of the Cornerstone Project and the vision was to stand for the transformation of these folks that needed a second chance. And we could believe in them and create the context for them to reinvent themselves and something new could happen in their lives. And particularly so, you were talking about kids coming out of gangs and, and uh, lifers in prison, guys and gals locked up or trying to make, you know, re-enter society, correct? That's right. That's right. So we did, we supported lots of these uh, gang reduction type uh, nonprofits, and then we went into the prisons ourselves. Followed a couple nuns into prison, and met a whole batch of lifers that were very ambitious. Really, were eager and wanted something to help them make life meaningful for them behind bars. Because many of them, 
or had opportunity for parole, but some of them it wasn't going to be for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Even some didn't have any opportunity for parole. So you got to make life matter. And that's that's where I met you. Just for clarity, we trained a bunch of the shot callers in prison to deliver the trainings. And to this day, they are doing a training a week there themselves. And it's the, the program has been held in place through three different wardens, which is unheard of. They, they love it. And I, from what I hear, uh, I just talked to somebody a couple of weeks ago. They said the, the, the yard has been transformed mm-hmm. from, from it. So I'm really excited. I'm, I'm blessed. I'm proud of it. And uh, yeah. it's great to hear that's going on. And a lot of our guys are out now. We're doing a training together uh, the third and fourth of November called The Invitation. And we have a couple of guys on that training team, right? That came out. That's of that. right. That's right. Yeah. And, and Hector. They're powerful Hector, individuals. And Hector yeah. from homeboys on the team but so as you went into this this was a new moment for you right it was like huge and uh yeah and so what happened like talk about as you went into this adventure what opened up for you what what are some of the things that you encountered so for about 10 years i'd been leading in the christian context which was which was phenomenal and great and meaningful and then i leapt into this which is much more of an entrepreneurial slash philanthropic endeavor. And there were a lot of things going on for me that I wasn't aware of until I made the leap. One of which was I I realized for myself that, you know, although I had been talking about spiritual principles daily and had been helping other people develop their own spiritual lives, I was more anemic than I thought. And what do you mean? Why don't you explain Sure. By anemic, I mean for myself, like in my own, well, I'll tell you where it happened for me. I mean, right, right between. So I left Mosaic and was about to start the Cornerstone Project. And in the middle, I, was, I got a call and was asked to go with a member of the royal family of a Middle Eastern country from, from Beverly Hills, where he was at. He was struggling with, with uh, liver cancer to go back to his home country and to spend time with him for two months. So literally went to the desert. So what that meant for me is I'd gone from, you know, being a significant part and playing a significant role in a, in a 3,000 person community to being in the desert with people that didn't speak English. And I was literally alone for two months. I mean, I was surrounded by people at times, but really no one to connect with. And so I was just left to myself. And for me at that moment, go ahead. And at, and at this time you had, you'd been married, right? How long had you been married? That's right. I've been married for probably a year or maybe two years at this time. And when you got married, did you meet your wife, Jess, at, at Mosaic during that time? I did. Yeah, I met Jess at Mosaic. She was fresh to Mosaic, really amazing person, new lease on life, really great person. And uh, we really connected about the mission of Mosaic. And she was very involved, very talented, really used her photography skills to make a difference there and be a part of a lot of the projects they were doing. And she's just a loving person. And we had gotten married, dated for a couple of years, uh, got married, had been married, I think two years when this trip happened. When I said I was spiritually anemic, I didn't know I was until I needed not to be. I'd gone to the desert alone and I felt really alone. And I'd realized for me how inauthentic I had been. And, and by that, I mean, like, I, I wasn't really aware of what was going on for me internally. Like I had always had this story that if I had more time, 
I would actually pray more. I would actually read the scriptures more. I would actually meditate more. I would journal more. I would do all these things more like for myself, but I never had time when I was working at the church. At least that was the story I had about it. And then I got to the desert and I had all the time in the world and I didn't want to do any of that. What did you do? What did you want to do? I mean, when I was there, I just sat by myself and there weren't a lot of strong yearnings while I was there. It was just facing the mirror and I didn't have any solutions for that yet, but I did, I did feel the, really the lostness of it. You know, like who am I really? Like was any of that that I came out of really true? You know, it was kind of a, the dark night of the soul they talk about and who am I now? And I just left this big role and I'm about to step into a big role and I don't know how to do that. And that's intimidating. So a lot of fear, a lot of intimidation. And I remember phone calls with my wife uh, of her, of her upset and her crying and of the relationships that had passed, uh, the relationships we had had in the, uh, at Mosaic where we previously met. And then she felt, she felt very alone. Partially I was gone and then partially um, not having uh, a lot of the friendships that we once had when I was on staff there. That was really hard for her. And I was across, the, across literally across the world, standing on top of a, of a water tanker, trying to get cell signal and support her and, and realizing there's nothing I could do to fix it from here. And that was sad. And that was like powerlessness, really. And I didn't really know what to do with that. And I came back from, from that trip to the Middle East and just jumped into work, but didn't really process that. Didn't really talk to people about that. I realized that I didn't have a lot of close friends at that point. I had a lot of people I'd done work with, but I hadn't really opened up much to people. I was kind of doing the work, but also part of it was playing a role and doing what was needed and not having a lot of close friendships, which, you know, at least for me, you don't find out you don't have them until you need them. Yeah. And, and right. so what I hear you saying is trying to live up to something that, That's ne- right. that wasn't necessarily you, but who you interpreted you needed to be. That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And I just kept doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing. And the results of that are what's, you know, I think it's profound because I don't think, obviously, I think that's a human condition. I know I can relate to it. Yep. But what comes out of it, I don't think, I know I haven't in the past up until a certain point really thought about the impact of living that way or living a lie in the sense that I'm trying to live up to an idea rather than express and become what's most important to me. And mm-hmm. usually that idea is what I think other people want of me. I didn't know how much of, I felt like I was an actor in life, mm-hmm. right? I felt like I was playing a role. I mean, I can connect when the whole, you know, vernacular of imposter syndrome showed up, you know, maybe a few years ago and people started talking about that all the time. I could easily relate to that just because I'd felt like that. Like, I, you know, well, who am I really? I don't know. I'll just keep playing this role called Adrian that works in life. People like it, it works. I get opportunities all the time. It works. I mean, I wasn't willing to slow down and process what was missing for me or what would be aloneness um, yeah. for me internally. And, and, I, and I'd had, you know, plenty of struggles in my life um, that I hadn't really processed with, hadn't even trusted my new wife with, and it felt a lot of shame about and just kept, you know, crushing that stuff down. And I didn't have anybody that I really trusted. Um, which had nothing to do with them. And if anybody was trustworthy, I didn't trust myself. I had assumptions about what would happen if I got honest. My assumptions were people would leave or I, would be, I wouldn't have the opportunities I wanted. So I, I wasn't willing at that point to take the risk and say, hey, here's what's really going on for me. I'm scared to death. 
I don't know what I believe. I uh, might not believe any of the stuff I've been talking about. I don't know. Um, and I don't know who I am. And I don't feel equipped to be a husband. So you cut a lot of this conversation off from Jess as well. Is that correct? Oh, totally. Almost yeah. all of it cut it off. I wasn't willing to face it. And so therefore, I wasn't willing to trust anybody else with it. And so the ordeal that grew out of it, because that's, that's usually right. what happens, right? I mean, that's right. You're, you're resisting the call to get to actually become what you've been teaching others. And, and that's ironic, right? Because they're learning. Right. They're becoming more transparent. They're becoming authentic yeah. in what they want. And yet you're struggling with it yourself. And so that's right. what came out? Because I mean, there's obviously a death moment, uh, kind of. So yep. the dark night of the soul might have started in the desert, but continued to stay with you. Two main tracks occurred. So one was I came back and kicked into the new position, lots of new activity, lots of new learning. I got really busy and that was exciting and thrilling. And that was one main track. That was the external track. The internal track for me, and this is where I really felt like a double life had started to definitely be crafted was, you know, I hadn't really ever drank very much and that started to pick up and I started to, to drink really to avoid these conversations inside of myself because I wasn't willing to have them. So you can numb them. And I figured out, oh, that works to numb them. And, um, and so that's when I, you know, when I worked at the church, we didn't drink um, or we didn't drink much at all, if, if, if any. And so now that I was outside of that expectation, I could, I could do that. And I was traveling a lot for work and I worked alone. And so I could start to kind of drink whenever I wanted. And it started slowly and it really progressed over time. And then also, you know, I numbed out by getting the affection of other people, right? So started slowly getting the affection of other people and womanizing in that way. And so I had this very very much two lives that were starting to occur for me. One was external, bigger and better than ever, quote unquote, but also internally, uh, it was getting darker and darker. That was a lot of pressure that I created for myself, all out of fear, really. Yeah, and, and just, I, I mean, I, I worked with you at that time and I, I was completely unaware of it myself. I was staggered yeah. when you called to tell me what had happened. I mean, why don't you talk a little bit about what occurred there? I mean, what the crisis was. Sure. Four, maybe five years. You know, I worked at Cornerstone for a couple of years and then jumped out and got into the coaching work. Developed a business with... Developed Jason. a business. Yep. yep. Developed a business on my own as a coach and then uh, took on uh, a business partner, a close friend named Jason Jaggard. He and I had worked together at Mosaic. He and I were best friends, stood each other's weddings. You know, I, I had this whole internal life, this second life that I wasn't telling anybody about. So I was carrying it around. These like addictions that grew and grew and grew. And it was like an automatic uh, way of dealing with the day. And you, when you say addictions, you mean the drinking and the womanizing and you know, the dark life where you just go numb out. That's right. You go numb out and it's all progressive. So it just gets worse and worse because you don't do anything to intervene in it. And, and the old stuff doesn't work anymore. So you just keep going and keep going, and keep going. And it just gets darker and darker. And then you can't, you can't believe it's happening, although it's happening. You can't really believe it's happening. And then, you know, I, I, you know, there's so many things that you, that I did. And I'm like, I can't ever tell anybody about this. And so you just stuff it down 
And that creates a whole shame cycle, right? Like a whole, you know, the despairing cycle of I do this thing. I feel really shitty about it. I can't, I tell myself, I can't tell anybody about it. If I did, they'd walk away. They'd judge me. They'd leave. I'd lose my life, whatever. And so then you feel even worse about yourself. You feel like even more of a fraud because you're literally being one. So you have to numb more and the more you numb. Numb more and the more you numb. You get deeper and get yeah and I in that in that period we had our first son I figured that might change some stuff it doesn't change anything at least for me internally because I got problems that I'm not dealing with and it just keeps getting progressively worse and progressively worse and you know many many I mean countless times you know for me like you know psychologists call it like suicidal ideation like fantasies about it being over and th- and you know not not like planning the process but definitely fantasizing about it like hey, if I drew if I drove my car off this cliff, would would I die and would they not know I did it? You know, that, that I, I would often think about, I wanna die before the gig is up. That was a fantasy of mine. Uh, Cause I knew at some point the honesty was gonna come and I didn't know what was gonna happen after the honesty. So yeah, I, I thought all the time about how, I mean, cause I created a really hard life for myself, like living at two different poles, like trying really really authentically wanting to make a difference in people's life. And I was authentically doing that. That was true for me and not knowing how to, not being willing to take care of my own shit. What pushed you over? What, what actually brought it about? Gratefully. I mean, some of the deception that I've been doing with Jess had started to catch up. Like a lot of the hiding of the drinking had started to catch up. And I told her, that I would go to a 12-step meeting about that, went to a 12-step meeting about that, and but you kept was but still couldn't stop my own drinking uh, or didn't stop my own drinking. And that actually the night of the first time I went to a 12-step meeting, I'd been drinking like normal and been driving like normal and I ran into a parked car. <laughs> that was the wake-up moment for me because uh, there's no getting out of that. That's like reality crashing in. Like, look what happens when you drink and you drive and you're not paying attention and you run into a parked car. Got arrested for that. And now it's time to have the conversations. And I remember that night explicitly, it was like 10 o'clock at night is when it happened, get taken down, that I got a cut above my right eye so they can't actually book me. They try to take me to a hospital to get the stitches put in. Anyway, all this long process, I end up getting back and driving myself to go get stitches put in. I'm sitting in this waiting room and I remember smiling exactly where I was standing. And I remember sitting down and pulled out a piece of paper and I remember writing, it might not get better, but I'm going to get better. And I believe that. I believe this was, I knew it. I knew that this was the moment for me. This was the choice. This was the opportunity. This was the opening, however you want to say it. Like this was the shot right here. And although I just totaled my car and although I'm in huge trouble and although I'm just got arrested, although I'm about to tell my wife the whole shebang, I knew all that was about to happen. It felt like freedom to me because finally I had to tell the truth and I knew the truth was going to set me free, although I didn't know what was going to happen next. So sat down with Jess the next morning told her all the truth about the drinking, which was relieving to me because it was like I was carrying around 10,000 pounds every day. And I was hiding it. At that point, I was drinking every day. Um, I'd go to the liquor store in the morning and I'd drink all day long, Um, manageably, so I could keep working and and keep talking and trying to hide it and all that. But, you know, it it was part of how I woke up in the morning. 
So telling her about that was so relieving, Ugh, you know, and she was, you know, shocked and betrayed and, and felt very deceived because she was, uh, and she was in shock and didn't really know what to do because there's no playbook on what to do on a morning like that. But I didn't tell her everything that morning. Um, that, that would, that would come over the next, uh, I would tell her the truth three days later when she called and asked about some of the other, about some of the womanizing that she had known about or had hunches about and I'd lied about and covered up and tried to. And uh, finally, I, she'd asked some direct questions and I'd said yes to those questions. And then we went through a process of uh, with working with a counselor and getting all that stuff out. And I did full uh, a full accounting of it, even took a polygraph to prove that I was being truthful about it. And that, that was also extremely frightening and extremely relieving. It's like, hey, this is actually what's happening. This is what has happened. This is what I have done. And I can't undo it. So the only thing I can do is to, you know, to put it on display and say, yes, I did that. And I'm not proud of it. Very sad about it. Feel the deep, you know, it was like the same feelings I had from back in the desert before really the journey began. Yeah, it's like uh, T.S. Eliot said, you know, you, you know, we end up where we come from. And yeah. It's like at this point, you're knowing it for the first time. That's right. And at the same point, so at, at that time, I mean, once I told the truth about all that, that really changed some things for us. That was some really ultimate betrayal for Jess, which I fully understood. And the people in our community, our friends at the time, a lot of ultimate betrayal for them as well, because I'd been fraudulent with them or hadn't told them the truth. Like I'd hidden a lot of what I was struggling with or what I was doing from them. I was hiding it from everyone, including each one of my friends. So that hit them all really differently. Uh, but for the most part, uh, most of them went away in that moment. I mean, I'll, I'll, you, you were my first call. I'll never forget it. I was at a funeral uh, for a friend. And, and when you told me, I had to sit down. And I, just, yeah. I didn't know what to think. But I knew that I could hear in your heart, I could hear in your conversation, what was up for you? And I was really appreciated your willingness to hear what was there for me. Yeah. I mean, right, right after I got the phone call with Jess on that Friday, uh, Jason was on a call. I was at the office and Jason was on a call. So I couldn't talk to him. And I walked outside and I called you. And that was a pivotal moment for me. I had a feeling about how you would respond. And you responded just like I hoped you would and how I assumed you would because of who I knew you were. And by that, I mean, you're a guy that's uh, been through a lot of life, uh, very, very acquainted with your own dark side and are not threatened by it, are not ashamed of it. And you can dance with it, right? You put it in its place and you can talk about it very freely and you liberate others by doing that. And so I knew that you were a safe guy for me to talk to or really a liberating, not just safe, literally a liberating guy for me to talk to because I needed that. I needed, I, I had just, fully open Pandora's box. I didn't know what was going to happen next. And I was scared to death or scared to life. The only first step of authentic spirituality is honesty. Um, at least, and that's true for me. If I claim any kind of spiritual growth or connection, it's only after I've been honest about what's true, what's real, what's here, what's now. And so on that moment, on that Friday, which would have been the first week of September 2016, is when I let all the secrets out and, and was willing to face the music. And I could have kept lying and I was just done. I had enough liberation from being honest about all the drinking. 
that I, I wanted the freedom that, that, that honesty could give me. So calling you in that, and you met me deeply in that. I mean, I was in tears, obviously sobbing and you met me right there. And, and then you hung with me in it and, and our friendship that was deep before then, and definitely had deep respect for each other through our time at Cornerstone was now there was new opportunity for us to go even deeper together. It was very powerful to hold in, challenge my own judgments and search my own soul and listening to you um, and connecting with you. Your road back and the resurrection basically that came out of this, what were some yeah. of the, what, what opened up, you know, what are some of the sufferings and, and breakthroughs that you experienced in facing up to this conversation? Yeah. Oh, where to begin? Well, you learn in crisis, um, you learn pretty quickly who's there for you. I, because at the time I knew that if I was my own solution, I was in trouble because I've been trying that for a long time, like trying to win in isolation and trying to fight these demons, these challenges by myself. And that wasn't working. So I knew I needed community. And at the same point, you know, I was also up against all of my wreckage, all the damage that I caused and the hurt that I'd caused in other people. So it was very complex because I needed people more than ever, but I also had betrayed everybody that I would have leaned on. What I saw was that, you know, people that had been through a lot of suffering before, people that had really were well acquainted for how they'd blown it in their own life and had given themselves a lot of grace for it, they were able to step in really quickly. So I got a lot of support from the 12-step community because all those people are very unapologetic about their history. And by unapologetic, I mean just honest, honest about their history. And they know the game. They know they need other people to survive. Um, and they know they need honesty to survive. So I really clung closely to those communities and really threw myself into it and worked the 12 steps. And which is a, which is a reconciling process to yourself, an investigatory process internally, and then doing what you can to make amends with your community. When you first told me, I'll never, the, the thing that kept coming to my mind was this Jesus's words that, you know, let you who have not sinned cast the first stone. And because there were a couple of things I just, I wanted to say, and I thought, no, wait a minute. What am I up to here? What, who am I talking to? I'm talking to myself over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, that, that, but that was in my mind almost every time in the beginning that we started talking. Sure. I, had a, sure. I really wanted to connect. And I noticed how afraid I was at first to connect because in connecting with you, then I become part of the, the what the crowd probably doesn't want to be around. Right. Right. It's not a, right. It's not a pretty process. No, so. no, it's uh it's a sad process, really sad for everyone, you know, because yeah. I, and I have lots of grace and love for all those, even that have gone away. Some right. that have gone away violently, you know, saying a lot of, you know, just sharing their, their hurt and their pain and don't want to talk anymore. And I've got lots of grace for them because I totally get that. I totally get it. I, I get the hurt and the pain and I get the human side of it as well. Just like judgment is easier than grace. That's why we do it. And uh, it's scary to hang with someone that you don't know or don't trust. And it's hard to listen and it's hard to rebuild trust. And, and, and especially in today's day and age and the million miles an hour, everybody's running. It takes work and takes time. And, and I, so I get it. And, uh, and then that eventually happened. Uh, with Jess and she hung in 
for about nine months and we did this long a lot of work. You guys did a lot of work. Did a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. And I was really thankful for her um, that she hung in. I mean, I, I gave her the apartment right away and I lived other, lived other places on couches and relocated to give her the space she needed for her to figure out what's real for her and what's, you know, what's coming up for her. And I didn't want to agitate that process. And, but I, uh, you know, didn't step back into that apartment since that day. And so it was tragic and really hard. And, you know, so there's a lot of anger, obviously, that comes up and that came up for me as well. You know, you got to face the anger that's there and the, the betrayal. And now I can really connect with the villain more than ever um, of the story, right? The one, the bad guy, right? The, um, because there's lots of isolation that, that he or she goes through as well. That I, I don't think there's a deep appreciation of it because he or she's going, if they're repentant, like I was. I mean, I... I made a 180, you know, on a day and then like just vowed that I wasn't going to go back to those behaviors and I didn't go back to any of those behaviors. And so to be the one really in the resurrection, but then being treated by your community like you were still the previous guy for lots of natural reasons, right? But it's just a very hard thing to live through when you've done all the work to be transformed and to be the new guy. And by human nature, by whatever, they don't see you that way, right? So, and they're still living in what you've done, which is really normal and natural. And, but and, and, may, and may never, you know, it's, I know right. when, when I repented with my wife and we, we, we went through a very similar process, it was powerful because at some point she realized that it was, she, she said to me, she said, I never realized how lonely you were until mm -hmm. I started to connect with you afterwards. And as I started to yeah. forgive you, I started realizing it was actually as bad on you as it was me. And, and uh, I never expected to hear that. Something I tell myself all the time is everybody's doing the best they can. Yeah. And however much that's true or not, you know, it's just a better place to live. And I, I really believe, I mean, I give it to Jess. She hung in there. I was going to um, ask you, I was going to ask you, what have you learned from Jess in this? She, she's a, a powerful mom really great and she went you know and she was from her perspective for sure she was doing what she could to protect the kids because of you know i i revealed all my unpredictability and what i've been up to and uh, that really put myself at risk at times put the kids at risk uh, with my uh, level of drinking and activity it wasn't safe and you know once we separated she really put the kids first which i fully respect and deeply appreciate. And she is a phenomenal mom. She's a phenomenal mom to this day. Um, I don't know uh, all the conversations that happened externally without me there, but she really, uh, she didn't, she definitely did not verbally punish me. You know, it did not get ugly to my face, um, which is plenty of emotions to be able to do that. And that's one of the things about as we've walked this out that I'm really proud of is how we've treated each other in the process which is very kind, very cordially, both probably from the understanding of, hey, we've, we're both going through a hard time, so why don't we at least be kind to each other in the process? And she's been that way to me. And she has, all along the way, put the kids first, even in the face of grave pain. And she didn't use the kid to punish me, which I've heard lots of stories mm. about women that are betrayed or people that are betrayed and they use the kids as pawns to punish the other person. She has never, I've never, I haven't seen that at all. Um, and even when I did feel punished, because there was times that I felt punished, which is different than her punishing me. 
I believe it was from a good place for her and she was just doing the best she could. So really honor her in the process. And she stood up for herself too, you know, and it takes a lot of strength to leave, to walk away. Uh, and that's, that's powerful and good for her. You know, that's not what I wanted and that's not what I fought for, for those nine months. But I respect that, respect that choice. This is, that's the, in some ways, it's, in some ways it's the harder road to go on yeah. your own. Yeah. That's a hard road. And so she's a brave person and she's going to be great. And she's doing great already, I'm sure. Um, we're building our, hopefully we're building a friendship back where we can start really talking about life again. At this point, it's really cordial. And we co-parents very cordially together and serve each other in that way and serve the kids. Oh, the kids um, are, I, I know your kids personally and they are just mm -hmm. a, what a delight. My grandkids. Uh, are yeah, the kids seem to be really doing great and that takes a lot of work. Um, to keep some stability between uh, before them between us so she's really you know stood up tall and she really deeply is connected to community through this process and it, it seems like she's created a lot of great friendships and really gotten deeply connected into the faith community we've been a part of now called radius and she serves there a lot she's really you know reinvented herself in this new you know era of her life so you know, she, and she looks great. She's taking care of herself. She's, you know, she's, she's really come out of this really strong, um, which I deeply respect. And for you, what, what, what has been the, the resurrection for you? What, yeah. what, has, what has opened up and. You know, that, that old, I think the quote gets given to DeSoto. I forget whom, or sometimes it's given to Caesar in a different situation, but um, the DeSoto quote is where, you know, they land in Mexico and they, you know, they're up against the Mayans or whatever the story is. And uh, he turns to his people and he says, burn the ships. And that was my, that was my decision. It was like, hey, I'm not going back to any of that old behavior, the womanizing behavior, not going back to any of the drinking. I'm, I'm going to be sober, stay sober and be an upright citizen. And so that's been, that's been the beginning. For me, I knew I had to get out of that behavior. And that's been the case, which has been phenomenal. And definitely, definitely, definitely has not been a solo project, right? So I've stayed, I have built a whole lifestyle around getting and staying healthy. So I dropped 30 pounds in the process. I've gotten very involved in the 12-step world here in LA. I've stayed involved in lots of those meetings. I sponsor about 10 guys right now, helping other people get out of old lifestyles they want to get out of um, and being support to them. A lot of them call me every single day. So I'm very connected to other people as they're fighting for life. I moved in to, to this place about a year and a half ago. I've got my own new apartment, had started fresh there, gave Jess all the belongings and started fresh and, and built a new business. So that's out of that, yeah. apropos, apropos maybe, take new ground, <laughs> came yeah. out of me saying, hey, listen, stand up. It's time to take new ground right now. Burn the so ships and take new ground. Burn, burn the ships. Burn the ships. Um, well, I, I yeah. mean, I, I, working with you has been exciting. I mean, we've grown yeah. in the last three months about as fast as I've ever experienced in any kind of consulting or training company. Yeah, I really enjoy working with you, and I am watching you in on all fronts, including with your children. You came yeah. up and spent um, a holiday with us what, about a month yeah. ago. Yeah, and Labor Day. Labor Day. It was just it was beautiful to watch. You know, <laughs> Scout and Charlie play with my grandkids, and just how well yeah. you know how well adjusted and how just loving they are, and 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 how they meshed so well with uh, my grandkids. 
Thank you, man. I, I've got more energy than ever before, for sure. I've got more clarity than ever before. I've got more belief in myself than ever before. I, I know now how to really connect to somebody else, especially when they're talking about their difficulties, because now I'm well acquainted with mine and can use them as a, as a connecting tool instead of when somebody was sharing about their struggle, really feeling shame. I don't have any shame about it anymore. I don't have regrets about about my history. It happened. I did it. And I don't waste my time with those types of conversations. And I don't waste my time with people that want to keep me in those conversations because I'm busy living over here, not busy dying anymore. So, um, you know, when I wake up in the morning, you know, I, even this morning, you know, my kids slept until six, which is a, a glorious thing. Um, and I'm up at 515 and I'm meditating and I'm journaling and I'm reading, you know, spiritual text. And I've got some quiet time for me, which is new and invigorating, like a time to really, I call it calibration time or time in the foxhole, I call it. So it's like time to get ready before the war begins, tend to make sure my head's on straight and, and, and get clear about what I'm scared of, get clear about what I'm intimidated about, get clear about, you know, anything I'm avoiding. I, I mean, I'm much more apt to have those conversations now. And if I have them with myself and with other people, I'm free. I don't have to hide anything, you know? So, and I now, because because of the resurrection, I can have so much more compassion for old Adrian, what I call him, you know, like yeah. he was a, you know, he was doing the best he could. He was scared to death, hurting and, and was a coward uh, on many fronts. And I don't say that as a judgment, but I, I say that as a, Hey, I hadn't tested the waters. I ended up having to test. I've got compassion for him now. And I can love myself in that way. And that's not at all not taking responsibility for everything I did. I earned it all. I earned the split of the marriage. Uh, I earned the split in all of the relationships that have, splint, that have split since then. I did plenty to break the relationships. And I'm proud I've done plenty to put them back together, the ones that wanted to. And, and I'm busy building a life now. So, so it is exciting. And I've got a lot more to give now because I'm well acquainted, very well acquainted with my dark side. And that's really what I look for in relationships now is like how well acquainted people are with their dark side and they can talk about it because I have zero judgment for people now, especially now. It's like, Hey, I get it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You didn't tell somebody the truth. I get that. Oh, you see, were scared. You wanted to save face. I get that. You chickened out and didn't have the conversation you thought you should have. I get that. I understand. And I'm on the other side. I know, I, I know how to really see uh, the meaning in taking the risk and being honest. And, and once you've, you know, once you've, you know, been left by most of the people in your life, you really don't have much left to lose. Right. So the, the willingness to go be honest and just let yourself be on display, like all my warts and all, which I am now with new friendships and such. Um, if it's too much for people or if I'm too much, I totally get it. And I'm, that's okay. That just means not, we're not compatible. I need to stay connected to my dark side because it's not going anywhere. Like all the old temptations are present. Um, those conversations aren't going anywhere. And I'm, I don't need them to go anywhere for me uh, to, be, to living, be living full alive, fully alive right now. Like I, I can, they can be there and I don't have to give myself to them. Um, and I don't. With a lot of work, spiritual work, a lot of relational work, a lot of connectedness. So yeah, I, I wake up excited for life most days. Not every day, but most days. And on the bad days, it's just like, oh, this is not a cloud nine day. This is a cloud one day, which a friend of mine, which a friend of mine, Matt Heck, told me today. It's like yesterday was a cloud one day. I thought, I like that. 
um, and says, okay, let's hang out on cloud one. Let's make the best of what we got. And um, so I'm able to do that and talk to people about it and not, and refuse the isolation that pain invites. The name of the podcast is Everyday Heroes. And I really see your journey as heroic uh, and your willingness to humble yourself and re reinvent and be remade by your commitments. So thanks. Thank you, man. Thank you, Adrian. I appreciate I'm, it. I'm, I'm grateful, man. I'm grateful for your, really your stand for me, your belief in me. You didn't go anywhere. You stayed tight and you were something for me to hold on to. Um, and I appreciate that. And as we do that with other people, man, it's going to be really powerful. I'm excited about what's coming up, man. So I love you and thank you for your partnership in business and in life. And, um, and to anyone listening, it's, it can get better. And I, I'm a living example of that if we're willing to be honest so we're here for you guys well thank you adrian and you uh, care. we'll talk soon if you like what you heard today please check out the hero being process an eight-week online gymnasium designed to support you in transforming your ability to heroically fulfill your unique purposes with freedom love and creativity available at theherobeing.com until next month keep kicking at the indifference until it bleeds life